Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 115. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Nico Hargreaves-Heald. Hey, Kip. Thanks very much for having me on. Of course, I'm very happy to have you here because today we're going to be reacting to an article published in The New Yorker, January 26, 2015, by Mattathias Schwartz entitled The Whole Haystack. And essentially, it looks at the NSA's approach to metadata gathering and some of the surveillance practices the organization uses in counterterrorism efforts in the 21st century. And although our discussion is going to go past and beyond the confines of the article, would you mind giving a summary or overview of some of the points that Schwartz makes? Sure, Kip. I'd be happy to. For the most part, the article considers the NSA and FBI's use of metadata as an intelligence resource. Now, for those of you who have heard the term metadata before, but maybe aren't really sure what it means, metadata is a term to describe data that pertains to other data. So, for example, if I were to give Kip a phone call right now using my cell phone, metadata surrounding that phone call would include the time that I made the call, the duration of the phone call, my telephone number, Kip's telephone number, possibly even geolocation information about where we are. There's also metadata that can pertain to emails and instant messaging, and it's much the same, the email address of the recipient and the sender the time in which the email was sent and received. The article also illustrates one successful case of the metadata gathering project, that of Basali Moalin, a Somali who came over to America in the late 90s, I believe. Moalin was eventually convicted of financing terrorism in Somalia through the use of metadata. The NSA also managed to ensure convictions for a number of Moalin's associates. But the article essentially states that Moaline's case is one of the few that can actually be traced back to the metadata program and overall argues that security is not necessarily bolstered by the use of metadata by the NSA. And of course, beneath this article about metadata, metadata gathering, intelligence and surveillance, there is an underlying question that Schwartz asks, which is ultimately, is it effective for the United States government to conduct itself in this way? Is this method worthwhile? And I would really like to know your thoughts on that, Nico. Kip, that's a really good question. And it's also a really hard question to answer. As a matter of fact, I actually think it's an impossible question to answer. I kind of have a problem with Schwartz's ultimate conclusion or his implied conclusion that it is an ineffective means of acquiring intelligence There are certain issues that are classified very intentionally by the United States government. Chief among them are issues of national security. In his article, Schwartz cites about three different politicians who all confirm, supposedly, that this is an ineffective means of acquiring intelligence about terrorist acts. That being said, none of them contribute more than one sentence about the intelligence program or its efficacy. So I think that Schwartz's source work is dubious at best. That being said, I'm not trying to support any claims of effectiveness regarding this program. I have no way of knowing. I don't have any level of government classification. And even if I did, it's unlikely that I would ever actually know if there are cases in which this program directly halted terrorist action. That's not something that the government would publicize in any capacity. 
I can, however, imagine ways in which this would be effective at at least dissuading terrorists from committing terrorist actions. At the very least, terrorists would be aware that there are government agencies watching for actions that may disturb the security of the United States. This may keep them from committing terrorist actions. Whether or not that is the case, it's impossible for me to say, but it's definitely something I could imagine. And I should add that what little information the media has related to the public about this issue is very inconclusive. How do you feel about it? Well, I absolutely agree with everything you just said, and maybe I shouldn't have asked the question originally because I concur that it is impossible to answer at this point. And while this is a discussion about classified information, unlike other episodes of this show where we've discussed articles with very clear evidence and very overt ideas that can be dissected, and in adherence with a negative answer to the question, is it effective, I really appreciate Schwartz's title for this article, The Whole Haystack, because for me, that is at the crux of what makes this security tactic a rather difficult one to swallow because there is simply an overabundance of information. And it's been proven that at times the FBI has known certain suspects were likely to commit terrorist acts, and when they went on to do so, it's not that they had never been flagged down, but that the FBI did not follow up on or pursue credible leads to ultimately apprehend those individuals. And while admittedly I have a very limited understanding of the technology, I do think that the people who are required to maintain and utilize it play a central role of independent judgment and comprehension in issues of counterterrorism. And that human element, in my mind, is a limiting factor, where in other areas of our lives, computers can automate a great deal of what we enjoy, for example, phone calls or prescriptions at a pharmacy, where you do not need to communicate with another human to accomplish a task. In surveillance, at least in my understanding, all of the information gathered has to be analyzed at the end of the day by a human individual. And to that extent, you can only have so many agents pouring over information, and the more information you gather, the more you have to sift through, otherwise you're unnecessarily producing metadata or other information that may not be filtered through human judgment of actual risks versus false leads or other information that can actually be discarded as non-essential to the aim of countering terrorist efforts in the United States. And in what I have read of recent statistics and analysis, the annual budget of security and intelligence agencies in the United States combined is over $50 billion. And even given those financial resources, the task of data and threat analysis, which comes of course after data gathering, is still not being accomplished. So Nico, in your understanding, why does the United States collect intelligence in this particular manner? Well, Kip, for the most part, it's for the reasons that you were just addressing. You mentioned that the combined intelligence budget per annum exceeds $50 billion. That's because the United States has over $50 billion to throw at intelligence and security measures every year. In fact, our defense budget is far greater than $50 billion. But $50 billion, by the way, exceeds a majority of the GDPs of many nations across the world. Our defense budget itself is about 12 times larger than any other defense budget in the world. So we do have that financial resource capability to leverage in the name of intelligence and threat analysis. 
In a similar manner, the United States is one of the most technologically advanced nations in the world. We also literally control all of the cabling that provides the World Wide Web throughout the world. Additionally, we have the home of the internet industry in our backyard in California. So these are resources that the United States controls and it can leverage in order to gain intelligence on perceived threats to national security. Now, with the programs that the United States invests in most heavily for intelligence gathering, it is most interested in what's called signal intelligence. Now, signal intelligence is exactly what it sounds like. Any data that can be gathered over digital or optical mediums could be considered signal intelligence. This differs primarily from what's called human intelligence, which is intelligence that is gathered directly by human beings. So you can think of any James Bond movie you've ever seen. James Bond is an agent that is in the field gathering intelligence for the British government. Now, the U.S. does use human intelligence, but it uses signal intelligence far more and uses human intelligence far less than, I would say, most other nations in the world. Other nations have, in the past, used human intelligence very successfully. For example, in both World War II and the Cold War, Great Britain was very effective in identifying foreign agents within their own intelligence or government communities and flipping those agents to become double agents working for the British government and providing human intelligence for MI6. This method was extremely effective in World War II. It did lose some of its efficacy in the Cold War because Russia's intelligence community was extremely adept at gathering human intelligence. One of the ways in which they did this was to capitalize on the communist sympathies of many citizens around the world. In this manner, they were able to gain human agents within opposing governments, such as the government of the United States, and thereby gain human intelligence about their enemies' movements, strategy, tactical approaches, etc. In a very similar manner, Israel is one of the more successful gatherers of human intelligence because it is able to capitalize on the shared ethnic and religious identity of many disparate Jewish communities across the world. And where other countries can rely upon a unified ethnic or religious or other identity as a factor for connection, America, I would contend, does not have a unifying cultural identity. Which is not to say, of course, that we do not, as Americans, have political beliefs that many of us hold, etc. But I do think our diversity, which we often champion, has, at least in my observation, in recent years, become less a seed for and intermingling of new ideas and different beliefs that are in concert with one another and has instead produced, again, in my observation, more fragmentation and conflict between differing ideals, which leads people, very rationally so, to retreat further within those particular identities, which again, I can't blame in and of itself because I think it's natural when uncomfortable to withdraw to what you know and what you're familiar with. But it produces a nation not only of 50 states, but of countless different forms of belief and lifestyles that do not necessarily learn from one another and do not necessarily seek to ideologically collaborate and grow through contact with one another. And so while those ideals are at their core 
optimistic, I don't think they've necessarily been realistic in recent years. And where I believe that familiarity breeds trust and understanding, I think social distance tends to produce misunderstanding or confusion, which can often manifest in fear of the other. Even thinking about my own experience, I've mostly interacted over the course of my life, even in travels that I have made, with people who share my socioeconomic background, my religious heritage, and at times because of the ways that we socially filter ourselves with people who share my ideological perspectives and interests. And while I'm not condemning that behavior, because I do think it's something we all unconsciously do for the most part, I would argue that those who rigidly adhere to it cannot claim to have a thorough understanding of those around them, which in our American nation includes a wide array of people with various backgrounds. And while the cultural differences I've alluded to dictate how American citizens interact or do not interact with one another, I think these political foundations and beliefs dictate how the government treats its citizens, especially when considering these intelligence programs. And Kip, I'm glad that you just mentioned those shared political sentiments because that's a really important reason as to why the United States conducts intelligence gathering in the manner that it does right now. Historically, the United States people have been extremely averse to American casualties in any capacity. It's very easy to find historical examples of this in the last 60 years alone. Obviously, every single time an American was killed in Iraq, there was a massive political blowback from the American people. So much so that George W. Bush has been completely discredited as an intelligent human being, let alone president, due to the number of American casualties in Iraq. Other examples of this include Operation Eagle Claw, which was a mission ordered by President Jimmy Carter in 1980 to rescue American diplomats from captivity in Iran. The mission was ultimately scrubbed only a few hours in. However, eight Americans ultimately lost their lives in a refueling accident towards the end of the mission. The public outcry about this loss of life was ultimately used as ammunition by Ronald Reagan in the subsequent presidential election. Jimmy Carter lost by a landslide. Thirteen years later, President Clinton authorized an operation in Somalia in order to capture a Somalian warlord. The mission was a complete disaster. Eighteen Americans died, and that incident largely guided Clinton's foreign policy for the rest of his tenure. So you can see how this aversion to American casualties has shaped the face of American intelligence gathering. We are not interested or politically able to insert human agents into dangerous situations where they may be killed or captured, resulting in an incredibly brutal political response. And Nico, as a final avenue of discussion here, I'd like to know what your feelings are about the aspect of privacy as it relates to this overall topic of NSA or government surveillance of American citizens as well as individuals abroad. Well, Kip, I think that's a complex question. I personally am willing to sacrifice aspects of my privacy in order to do what I believe is good work in actually providing security for the American people. I think of myself as an optimist about the government's use of intelligence gathering and the systems that are in place 
a lot of people that I know seem to think that the government is more of a big brother figure and less of a figure for good or for at least the safety of their people. I am of the mind that the government is indeed trying to help. Now, do I think it's a perfect system? Absolutely not. I personally believe that our government is accountable to the people that it is trying to protect. And I don't believe that there has been enough transparency into the current systems that are in place in order to allow the American people to hold accountability over the government. Now, I think that is also a complex problem. How do you maintain transparency while simultaneously maintaining security? It's extraordinarily difficult. I'm inclined to give the government the benefit of the doubt and to say that they are doing everything they can to ensure transparency. But I don't know. It's difficult for me to say. To answer your original question, Kip, again, I am willing to sacrifice elements of my privacy in order to support work that I believe is for a good cause. I think I feel largely similarly. I will admit that I can understand the concerns of law-abiding Americans that in a hypothetical and perhaps more totalitarian future, a government could absolutely abuse its power to engage in the incarceration of, persecution of, and elimination of American individuals accused of espionage or outright anti-American sentiment. As an example, I tend to be a largely critical person, and on this podcast I've made statements I'm sure could be construed as anti-American. And what I particularly value about our country is that, at this present moment in time, one can be critical of the nation because they love it and hold it to a higher standard than they believe it is currently operating at. And I think as it relates to privacy, people want to continue to hold their beliefs, but if they feel they cannot express them, there is a certain tension there. And I absolutely understand why people do not want larger bodies and potentially faceless individuals behind computer screens that they don't know to monitor and accumulate their information, perhaps to be permanently stored. I understand that apprehension, and I do think it has a logical basis. But I also think, in the same way that we cannot always speak with certainty about information that has been thoroughly classified and guarded, it's also difficult to speak about privacy because it often involves fear. And I think once fear is introduced, our thoughts are not necessarily based in logic so much as instinct and a desire to protect oneself. And it does become complex for that reason. And in closing, what are some things you'd like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? Well, Kip, one thing I would ask is about the international effects of the current surveillance programs by the United States government. We've been talking largely about the domestic surveillance programs, but these are enormous systems run by a number of different governments across the world. In terms of the international fingerprint of America in surveillance, we are part of a larger group called the Five Eyes, which consists of four other nations in addition to the United States that all pool their intelligence resources or aspects of them in order to provide global security. But this essentially means that the United States is actively monitoring global citizens, over which, in theory, it has no jurisdiction. So I would ask listeners to consider the international legal ramifications of this, as well as the ramifications to American foreign policy and influence across the globe. How does this shape our image? How does this shape how we are perceived across the world? 
And also, Kip, to your point, how can we influence our government so that we don't get to the point of Big Brother utilizing information that it has in an inappropriate manner? I think those are important questions to ask. And I'm reminded of the idea that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission, by which I mean in this context that I can understand why the American government in secrecy conducted and continues to conduct these policies because had it been proposed as some sort of democratic referendum, I can't imagine that American citizens would unilaterally or even largely agree to any procedure that proposed to gather private information without their knowledge or consent. But I do think looking at examples like the Snowden leaks or information that came from WikiLeaks that now the information has been revealed, perhaps a discussion can occur between the American public and the American government to increase in some realistic capacity an idea of transparency, or to at least understand the aims that our government hopes to take in protecting and serving our country, if that is in fact what American citizens feel the U.S. government is doing. And I think there is disagreement there, though I understand your optimistic perspective that that is the case. And I would even pose the idea that data gathering or metadata gathering is particularly uncomfortable to Americans for two reasons. One, that most of us don't fully understand the technological complexity behind data gathering. And as I'd mentioned earlier, where the unfamiliar people in our lives tend to make us feel uncomfortable or at least in a space of misunderstanding, I think similarly, when someone comes to tell us effectively that technological wizardry is occurring behind the scenes, I think it can make many of us afraid because we don't understand the full capacity or power that a government or an organization or a body of sorts using that technology is capable of. And the other reason that I think data gathering is particularly upsetting to many Americans is that many of us are using connected, by which I mean internet-capable devices, on a daily, hourly basis to the point that these devices hold a very intimate role in our lives. I personally can attest to the fact that my phone, with various phone calls that I make to try and stay in touch with friends, has become essential to many of my social functions in life. And perhaps some individuals would scoff at that information, but to be told that a device, a person, any entity in your life that you've come to trust can also be used against you, I think immediately puts most people on guard and on edge, because suddenly our perspective of how we operate in our world has to change because we're made aware of new information. And I'd be very curious to hear what listeners think about all of this. Of course, Nico, I'd like to thank you for helping to unpack even a fragment of what is absolutely a vast topic. It was really great to speak with you on this. Of course, Kip. Thanks so much for having me on. It was my pleasure. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have any thoughts, feedback, or opinions of any kind, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. You can connect with us via Twitter or Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with someone you think might enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.